TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I took like one semester of, of journalism writing classes and I remember I had this poor beleaguered teacher who was this like lovely, brilliant human, this like really talented journalist. And, you know, she was trying to get me to like take adjectives out and I was like, no, like I won't relinquish another adjective. And she was like, I don't know if this is for you. Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, Hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself... What will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer Carmen Maria Machado about her career and the importance of ego. It's an essential element to being an artist, because otherwise, like, what are you doing? You have to have that investment in it. Here's Debbie Millman. If you like fairy tales and myths, this book is for you. If you like horror and science fiction, ditto, the same book has got you covered. If you like experimental fiction, queer theory, and luminous storytelling, well, you're in luck. My guest today is the author, Carmen Maria Machado, and her book, Her Body and Other Parties, has been nominated for the National Book Award for Fiction. She's here today to talk about her writing, her life, and her career. Carmen, welcome to Design Matters. Oh, thank you for having me. Carmen, I understand that from the moment you were able to pick up a pen, you were writing. And I read that as a kid, 
you found the address for the Scholastic Book Publishing Company in a babysitter's club book and sent them a chapter of a novel you were writing, adding, please let me know if you would like to see more of it. How old were you when you did this? <laughs> oh, my God. I must have been, I'd say, probably about third grade. So how old are you in third grade? Like eight, maybe? Um, yeah, my godmother bought me a personalized stationery set. It had jungle animals on it, and it had my name and my address. And after that, I just went to town. I was sending letters to everyone, um, and I felt really empowered by the stationery. So, um, Did you write the story on the stationery? No, the story was printed. So my, my parents had bought, you know, it was like a Windows 3.1. Like it was, you know, it was a really old computer. Well, it's old now. It was at the time amazing. And um, <laughs> I loved the word processor and I typed a lot of stories up on the word processor. So I typed it up. I must have gotten my father to print it out at work. And then I wrote the sort of, the I guess what you call the cover letter um, on my stationery and then I mailed it in. Did you ever hear back? I did not. My, my wife who works in publishing assures me that some intern probably hung it up, you know, in there. In their cubicle with like a lot of joy and happiness, um, which it makes me it makes me happy. Your grandfather came to the United States from Santa Clara when he was 18 and went to Tennessee to go to college. It took him 10 years to finish his degree between working, learning English and being deported back to Cuba during the McCarthy era and serving in the Korean War, which is how he earned his citizenship. Growing up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, you've said that there was a lot of storytelling going on in your home, particularly from your Cuban granddad. What kind of stories were being told, and how did they influence you? You know, he would tell stories about Cuba and about his life, you know, after he left Cuba— that were really strange and that they were they were very dark. And I don't think I fully appreciated or understood their darkness. So, for example, there was a story he would tell about, you know, how he had this pet rooster. And then, you know, one day they were having dinner and they hadn't seen the rooster in a while. And he asked where's the rooster? And they were like, well, you're eating it. You're eating him, um, you know, because <laughs> um, it's Cuba and everyone's, you know, their family was hungry. They had to eat their their pet rooster, as you do. And so, you know, and that's, a, you know, it's a very dark story. And Or he would talk about how, you know, a lot of the people that he knew went to, so he ended up, he didn't, he didn't serve in Korea proper. He, I mean, he was during that conflict, but he was in Germany as an engineer. But the story that he tells is that he sort of narrowly escaped going to Korea and that a lot of the men that he would have served with died while over there. And he just sort of escaped by the skin of his teeth. And there's this sort of way of speaking about his life that was sort of funny and rueful and structured in this really interesting way, like, you know, like a storyteller, but also had this funny darkness to it and that sort of the humor and the darkness were always very close to each other and sort of playing off of each other which I've since learned is actually a very, like, distinctly sort of Cuban <laughs> um, way of, of speaking. Having now been to Cuba and met a lot of relatives who live there, that's just, I think, a way that a lot of uh, Cuban folks just sort of speak about the humor and the, and the sort of the grimness. You've written this about your grandmom. My grandmother was a mountain. When I was a girl, I'd stand next to her vanity and watch as she strung herself with what I thought of as her jewels— jangling, glittering bangles and jade-green lucite earrings and roped gold necklaces and Swarovski crystal brooches shaped like elephants and tigers. She wore leopard print nightgowns and smelled like white diamonds and overflowed from the bones of her chair. Her body was a marvel to me, a form unbound and soothing as a Buddha. 
Sometimes I would sit in her lap and peek down her shirt to see her mysteries. She was the biggest woman I knew. I love that. I love that description. Did she influence how you see the world or how you see bodies in the world? You know, she didn't really talk about it. It, it wasn't as if she sort of was like, you know, or sat me down and was like, all right, Carmen, like, let's talk about bodies now. Like, she just sort of existed in, in this way that was audacious um, and in a way that was very at odds with all the other messages I was sort of getting about bodies and the way that, you know, fat women should treat and sort of present their bodies to the world, including from my own mother. So, so she was sort of the one example that sort of defied what I was seeing everywhere else. So it wasn't so much, it wasn't as if she was sort of directly telling me. I'd been trying to write about fatness for a really long time, and I'd really struggled to, and that essay was sort of how I, I figured out the essay that I wanted to write. After you graduated from a bunk bed that you shared with your brother, you got your own room. And around that time, you began to have night terrors that climaxed in sleep paralysis. And you would sense a phantom presence with you in the room. Did these experiences play into the themes of the stories that you would later write as an adult? I was thinking of the phantom presence in your story, Eight Bites. I mean, I think it played into a general sense of... There is something else. And, you know, that sort of manifested in a lot of ways in my life. It's manifested as religious faith. It's manifested as being really interested in horror and and work, both writing and reading work that sort of deals with these sort of other elements. You know, and even though there's like a very obvious sort of medical explanation for night terrors and for the reason people feel like there is a thing in the room with them. I, I haven't had it as an adult, but as a kid, yeah, like sometimes I would, I would sort of fall asleep and I would, as I'm also falling asleep, I would just hear the sound like, like a train like coming down on me or like a monster and it would just be unbelievably loud and then it would stop. And yeah, so all of those sort of ways in which my body sort of existed in this like weird liminal space in the world, you know, sort of, I guess, contributed to my desire to sort of read about those sorts of things, and then also eventually, I guess, write about them. Back then, you were incredibly anxious and have written that you were always upset about something that had happened or could happen, and you were also an obsessive rule follower. I was too. <laughs> where, where did all that anxiety come from? Um, it's probably, I mean, I think it runs in my family, and there is like sort of an element. It's a, you know, and it's a combination of like, sort of psychology and like a way to think about the world and also there's like a you know a sort of a sensory element of it where it's like being easily overwhelmed or you know your my body responds very strongly to my anxiety which you know is just just sort of the way it is um but yeah (laughs) I understand you were a big reader when you were a kid Mm -hmm. but you got so freaked out by R.L. Stein's Night of the Living Dummy book that your mom banned Goosebumps (laughs) books from your house (laughs) But yes. I read that you liked how it made you feel afraid. And and you've observed that a book can reach out and do that was a really marvelous thing to learn. Yeah, it's funny. I just, I literally just bought an enamel pin that is the dummy's head from that book that I found at a store. And I felt right that I owned it because <laughs> it just seemed like a thing I should wear my lapel whenever possible. Um I did an interview a while ago where I was discussing this with the interviewer and he described it as something that changes your temperature. And I was like, yeah, like the work that I like is work that changes your temperature. It makes you feel something because I feel like oftentimes I'll like watch a movie or read a book or play a video game or do something where like I I sort of do it and then I'm like, okay, like that was a thing I did. But like 
there's no sense of anything. There's no, like, I'm not happy or sad or angry or afraid or anything. I just, like, feel like nothing. I'm just like, okay. Um, and that's, that's like, my worst nightmare as a reader and as a, as a writer. If someone was like, oh, I felt nothing when I read your book, I'd rather someone be like, I hated your book. I'd be like, good. I'm, <laughs> I'm, glad, it, I'm glad it, like, evoked a feeling in you that way. So, yeah, so those books... I couldn't tell you why. I don't know why that book in particular, but for some reason that was a book that so affected how I felt. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I The lights were on for a week. My mother was just like, she was beside herself. She's like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are you doing this? Why do you think it terrified you so much? I mean, I haven't read it in a long time, so I, I honestly can't tell you anything. I know it involves like a, like a living ventriloquist dummy. That's like, or like a, like a demonic possessed dummy. That's about all I know. I do remember, I, I think I had nightmares about it. And I think that probably, like I had, I remember like nightmares with the dummy being in my house, but that's not from the book. That's like from my own mind. So like, you know, my house and then the dummy and the dummy chasing people and, and the, what came out of it, which is this like complete terror that just had no name that... <laughs> You know, that's interesting. <laughs> that terror that has no name is almost a way that I would describe some of your stories where oh, there's this underlying yeah. sense of tension and you tease us with it. You bring it out a little bit and then you sort of begin to wonder if, wait, did I get that right? And then you have to mm. remember and go back. And there's this building sense of intensity that I've never read before. I've never read anything like that before. (laughs) And it's just been an extraordinary experience reading your short stories. What is it about short stories you like so much? Short stories, I think of short stories as like laboratories. Like Because they're so short, you're able to sort of play around in a way where if the experiment fails, you can sort of cast the story aside and move on. So like, you know, people write novels that never go anywhere. And that's like so much... Like, just literally the sheer amount of pages before you're like, oh, no, this is a failed novel. That's, like, a nightmare to me, you know? And I'm sure at some point I'll write. I mean, I hope to somewhere write a novel. But for me, it's, like, the pleasure of just, like, right now I'm writing, like, a 10-page story, 20-page story, 30-page story. And that's, like, a very sort of contained space that I can sort of play around in and experiment. And also you can sort of pull things off in the short story that a reader would not necessarily want to sustain like try to imagine like my story inventory but over the course of a novel right like it's like it'd be like I mean you I'm sure there's a version of it that's possible but like I think that a reader would be like I'm exhausted by this you know this form or this constraint and I don't know so for some reason the short story just really it just works for me I really enjoy it I always I like reading short stories like if you recommend an author to me and I go to the library and there's like a novel and a short story collection I'll always pick up the short story collection me too I love short stories they feel somehow easier to manage emotionally (laughs) yeah and they're it's just like a different I always tell my students like you know a novel is like being beat up over the course of like a day and a short story is like a one punch to the nose like it's just like a different sort of experience of reading and I just prefer the I prefer the punch to the nose I guess <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> for those of my listeners that have not read Carmen Maria Machado's book yet I want to give you a little bit of a sense of what she was talking about when she referenced the short story inventory it's a list of the various sexual experiences the protagonist has over the course of uh, her life and it's quite interesting and unnerving and surprising and very, very unpredictable. We have a book that we both love in common. Um, in high school, your English teacher, Mrs. Steinbau, I believe is her name, mm-hmm. gave you a stack of books from her personal collection that she wanted you to read. And among them was Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. 
you've said it blew your mind as it did me. I remember reading it when I was in college. You read it younger. I remember reading it on the bus. I couldn't stop reading it, so I just was like carrying it and reading it wherever <laughs> I was going. And I was going to to a class, and I had to take the bus to this to school, and I was like reading it on the bus, and I finished it on the bus, and I wanted the bus to never stop driving because I just wanted to keep reading this book for the rest of my life. Yeah. But you've said this about your experience reading it. I'd never even heard of magical realism before. It seemed to sink so cleanly with my perception of the world, reality tinged with inexplicable events, a kind of lushness that I understood but never put a name to. And of course, the book was gorgeous and completely overtook me. After that, I never wrote the same way. Everything seemed pregnant with magic. I've been trying to recreate that experience in my work ever since. Do you believe in magic? <laughs> I want to believe in oh, magic. So lie, so I am lie, so I'm lie. one of those people. I exist in this very weird space where I'm like a I'm like a ruthless pragmatist and I have zero superstitions of any kind. And yet I want to believe in magic, like, more than anything. I, If I could change a, anything about the world, I'd be like, I want to know that supernatural things could be true. Like, so it's weird because, like, I love ghosts and the idea of ghosts, but I don't believe in ghosts. But I am very interested in the experience of, like, what does it mean when people say they've seen a ghost? Or when people have, you know, I was very religious for a long time and I'm not anymore, but, like, what does it mean to have religious? Like, why do people need you know, faith in these sort of unseen elements. Like, what does it mean for us to believe in things like demons? Like, how do these elements sort of play into what people have to sort of need or want psychologically? And so, yeah, that's just, like, really interesting to me. But, yeah, I want to believe in ghosts so bad. Like, it would really, it would be amazing. Um, Wouldn't it? And it would sort of, it would stop a lot of wars and fighting because we'd finally understand something that we didn't understand before or we'd see proof of something that we didn't believe and therefore everything would be called into question yeah you were a brownie and then a girl scout until you were a senior in high school i would not have expected that really (laughs) why (laughs) i don't know you just seem so much more subversive and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you don't you don't know me well. I'm I'm like subversive in certain ways, but like I said, I'm a I was a I was a rule follower. I loved Girl Scouts. Um, did it make you fit in? I know you said that you felt like you were no. really weird when you were in high school. I did not fit in at all. The, the girls in my Girl Scout troop were not big fans of me, uh, which I understand because I was a really weird kid. Like I think I was very off putting and very strange, and but I still like I got along with the adults really well. I always got along with adults, and like. I don't know. I just sort of enjoyed, even though like it wasn't the most like sort of socially enriching experience. I do. I just loved like camping, and I loved selling Girl Scout cookies, which I was really good at. And like, <laughs> I don't know. I just really, really enjoyed the the elements of it. And and you know, my dad was a was an Eagle Scout and a Boy Scout leader, and my brother was a Boy Scout and became an Eagle Scout. And like, so scouting was just, like a thing my family did. But I, yeah, I really liked. I mean, I learned cool stuff. Like, I learned. Did you have one of those sashes with all the badges? I did. I actually just recently. Oh. I just cleaned up my apartment and I found all of my vests and badges. And I need to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I need to like put them onto a quilt or I don't. I don't I need you to do something to. with them because it's you like they're to. so cool. You know, I liked being like, okay, I got to go get my. I don't even know my like explorer. But it's not. Yeah, it's not no. That. I, it was. I think it was. I mean, I yeah. was obsessed with getting badges, and I never got one. Mm. Not one. And I ended up buying one on eBay. <laughs> oh, no. Just for yourself. Wait, what was the badge for? Like, arts what was, and crafts. Arts and crafts. 
<laughs> well, I think you've probably earned the arts and crafts badge. I'm sure if you went and looked at the requirements, like I'm sure. <laughs> years and years ago, I was doing some brand consulting. I went for a meeting at the Girl Scouts, and they have that store in yeah. their oh, offices. Yeah. I and I went in, and like you could buy all the badges, and I was like. I could just like completely re-engineer my childhood right now. <laughs> can buy every single badge, and then I said to the woman at the check, okay, "How much are the badges?" She says, "Oh, you can't buy those yeah. unless you're a Girl Scout leader." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." That I yeah, there was something just so pleasant about it, and I don't know, I just really liked it. But you said that yeah. you were. You said this is this is a quote. I was mm-hmm. just so fucking weird. I cannot emphasize how fucking weird I was. <laughs> As a teenager, I was the weirdest. <laughs> so how were you weird? I, I don't. I, I mean, I, I guess everyone says that about themselves. They're like, I was so weird as a teenager, but I, I wasn't I, weird. I, oh, you weren't. Okay. <laughs> no, I was. I mean, I just I was not super interested in the sort of normal like social stuff that I think a lot of teens get really focused on. And I was like religious, so like. There was this element of it where I was, like, hanging out with, like, the Bible study kids, which was, like, its, its own, like, sort of social suicide. And I never quite – like, I you know, I have friends from high school, but I just also didn't have, like, one clear, like, group. Like, I sort of moved around between social groups. Like, I, I don't know. I just sort of – I don't really – I didn't know what – I was a mess. I didn't really know – I didn't know what I was doing. What did you think you wanted to be professionally at that time? I wanted to be a doctor for a long time, which is insane to me because I'm a hypochondriac and I hate science and math. So, like, why would I – why – or not hate them, but I, I was not good at them. Um, so, like, what on earth could I have contributed by being a doctor? But my dad was an engineer and so I think I had in my head, like, what's the most exciting – so I was like, I want to be a pediatric oncologist. Like, I learned that phrase. <laughs> I know, right? Like, what was I th- – What I would, is that? And I would say to adults, like, I want to be a pediatric oncologist. They were like, oh, okay. <laughs> such a strange it was really strange um yeah and my friend and I my friend Margaret and I had uh, American Girl dolls and we made an American Girl doll hospital so my dad actually built me like a little bed for my American Girl doll that like the back would like raise and lower if you pulled a rope and like a met I guess like how I imagined like a a hospital bed would be and then um we would make like IVs out of like Ziploc bags and like food dye and water and then we would like have a string and we like tape like a safety pin like to the doll's arm and I drew on my American Girl doll's stomach like stitches um and my mom was so mad she was like do you know expensive that doll is and I was like she had surgery <laughs> like what do you expect um yeah so I we so like I we just really got into like this playing and like we my, my friend Margaret and I this is another example of how I was weird like I played like imagination until I was like 16 years old <laughs> like like I feel like I feel like that was another way in which I just wasn't quite like in some ways, I was like very like advanced for my age in the sense that I was I was reading like really far ahead of my age level. But also, I would do things like I was just playing pretend until I was like way too old. To play. Did you pretend. have a, an imaginary friend until you were sixteen? Not imagine. No, Margaret was an actual friend. Margaret, Margaret was an actual person. <laughs> uh, but or I think so. No, she is. I, I literally ran into her like last year on the street in Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, no. Um, I feel like objects always have this like intense narrative potential and like. I believe that my furniture was, like, sentient for a really long time. So I would do this thing where before I left for, like, a vacation, I would – I had this ritual where I would say goodbye to my furniture and I'd explain, like, I'm coming back in two weeks. Because we would do these, like, um, every summer my mother – my mother's from Wisconsin and we would go visit my Wisconsin family for, like, two weeks every summer. That was our, like, family vacation. Very exciting. Um, So I was – it was the longest time I'd ever be away. I would ever be away. So I would, you know, say, like, goodbye. Like, I'll, I'll be back in two weeks. 
And I, I think I got that idea because I, I had seen Pee Wee's Playhouse and I was imagining like all the, the chair like spoke, you know, the chair like spoke. And so I think I just got this idea in my head that my furniture could, if it so chose, like swallow me alive or like do something else to me. And I had to sort of keep a good relationship with my furniture. And I did so by like, expl- I mean, saying that out loud sounds insane. No, but, not at And all. this happened not again and again until I was like too old, like old enough to know better. Like I feel like those rituals lasted much longer than one would expect. You went to American University in Washington, D.C., and you studied initially journalism. Why journalism? (laughs) Because I wanted to be a writer, and my dad told me the only people who had jobs, full-time jobs who were writers that had health insurance were (laughs) journalists. Of course, this was before, this was 2004, so everything really changed for journalists. And, like, all the people I knew who got journalism jobs, like, lost their jobs, you know, like, when everything kind of shifted over. I took, like, one semester of, of journalism writing classes, and I remember I had this poor, beleaguered teacher who was this, like, lovely, brilliant human, this, like, really talented journalist, um, Amy Eisman. And, you know, she was trying to get me to, like, take adjectives out, and I was like, no, like, I won't relinquish another adjective. And she was like, I don't know if this is for you. <laughs> I like, and eventually I just like changed majors because I was like, I just can't, like, this is not how I want to write. And I mean, honestly, whatever job you sort of want, you imagine the glamorous part. And I was oh, like, yeah. imagine- Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday. Yeah, right, right. right. I was like imagining, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like do some investigative reporting and they're not going to see it coming. And like, I'm, you know, I'm going to get a Pulitzer. And then, like, um, <laughs> My teacher would be like, you know, like usually in the beginning you're doing things like covering city hall meetings and like covering this. And I was like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. Journalism is just not for me. Um, and but I you changed your major to photography. I did. Why? I just liked photography and I, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And, you know, I was at AU and everyone at AU is like political science or, you know, international relations. And like none of those things really spoke to me. And, yeah, and I took a photo class and I absolutely loved it. So I was sort of a photo kid. Like I did like sort of a visual. And I did some like studio art and I did some writing, creative writing. But, I mean, like if I could go back and do it over again, I probably would have done something really different. But Like what? Oh, um, actually design. Really? Um, was a thing that I was really interested in and also like graphic design was what's really interesting to me. <laughs> After you graduated from AU, you applied to and got into the Iowa Writers Workshop, widely regarded as one of the best writing programs in the world. What inspired that decision? Well, there was a gap in between. So I moved to California for no reason. And Where? it was like the recession in Berkeley. And it was the beginning of the recession. It was like the worst decision I could have possibly made. I had a degree that I that was totally non-functional, you know, student loan debt. I moved to like the most expensive area in the country I could possibly have moved to. And I just I struggled. Like I had a couple of like relationships that didn't end so well. And then I was working a job I really hated and I couldn't find a job that I liked. And um, I was broke all the time because it's so expensive. And that was this was 10 years ago, so I can't even imagine it now. But, like, even then living in Berkeley, like, you know, all my money went to rent. And it was just, like, it was just impossible to live. And I was miserable and I missed everyone and I was just really sad. And so I just started applying to MFA programs and I was so desperate. I mean, I applied to, like, a ridiculous number of them. Like, I think 25, 26, which is unbelievable. Like, people were like, that's really intense. Um, but then, yeah, I got into I got into – Iowa and did not look back was just like peace California <laughs> like see you later smell you later <laughs> like, um yeah is this, is this when you finally accepted that you wanted to be and were going to be a writer 
Yeah, it was the first time that I think I had taken like a, what I consider like a professional step. You know, before that, I, I still, I mean, I was writing this whole time, but I never really thought about like, what well, if I wrote a book or like, what if I did this? But yeah, going to Iowa was the, the first step. So, so I also was not sure through most of my time at Iowa if I'd actually be, like if a book was going to happen. And I was sort of experimenting and, and trying new things. And then everything sort of clicked into place. Um, but most of that happened like after I graduated. But yeah, when I was at Iowa, I was like, and I sort of made decisions about like, I want to try freelancing. Like I want to try book reviewing, like actively trying to like sort of push into certain areas that I was interested in trying out. You've stated that you consider your short story, which is in her body and other parties, difficult at parties, the piece that started the way you write now. Mm-hmm. In what way? When I first got to Iowa, the work I was writing, it was derivative and not in a good way. So, like, all writing, like, all art, right, like, you, it comes from your influences, right? And you you, you read other writers or if you're an artist, you know, if you're an artist, you consume other art and then you, you think about that art when you are making your own art. And... I was just sort of playing around, but I wasn't really, my heart was not in what I was doing. Like I was, I would write a story and I really liked the sentences, but like, if you were like, what's this story about? It was like just some dreadfully boring, like, oh, her father died and she's sad about it. And like, there's a funeral and like, it was always just really kind of like sort of tedious and, and plotting. And I remember a classmate saying to me, you know, like a lot of this is like pretty dull, but like there are moments in here, there's like flashes in here where I can see that you were, cause most of the story, I feel like you're not interested in what you're writing, which he was right. He was 100% right. Like I was bored with what I was putting out. But then he'd be like, there are moments in here where suddenly I sense you are suddenly interested. And there was a moment in one of these stories where death appears to this woman and she has this conversation with it. And this is a story that like has never been published, but because this is the famous story that's never been published. Right. It's like really bad. Yeah. It's like, it's like super bad. Um, Like I don't want to talk about like, well, it was just like not a good story, but there was this moment in it, right. Where death appears and this woman has this conversation with death. And my friends were like, this is what, or my classmates, my friends and classmates were like, this is what is interesting. Like, this is where you come alive on the page. So you should be reading writers that do things like this. Kelly Link, Karen Russell, George Saunders, um, Helena Yemi, Angela Carter, you know, et cetera. And just like, just, you know, all these sort of fabulists and like people who are writing in this very like liminal horror space. And so I did. I just like started reading them and suddenly I felt like, I mean, because I feel like when people ask about like, what is a writer's voice? Like, what does that mean? And for me, one's voice is what you want to, it's like you want to, the thing you want to talk about in some capacity and you have a way to talk about it. So like for me, like the thing I wanted to write about was like gender and women's bodies. And like that I think was always there. But suddenly I realized I had this language for it. I had this way of thinking about it that involved things like horror and liminal fantasy, magical realism, whatever you want to call it, that gave me like an architecture through which I could sort of erect these ideas in a way that was unique to me. And so I sat down and I wrote Difficult at Parties. And it, and I, you know, I wanted to write a story about sexual violence. It was really important to me. But I was also really concerned that people would be like, oh, like, OK, a woman, a feminist writing about se- about rape, like – Whoop-dee-doo. And I was like, I want to find a way into this story that no one can tell me that it's been done before. And so I decided to have this woman who's sort of post-rape trying to sort of find that inner part of herself again. Um, and then, of course, dis- and in the story, discovering that she can hear the voices of the actors in, in pornographic films. And so... But, you know, you never use the word rape. I don't. In that story. I don't. I don't. I think it's inferable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't, yeah, I don't use the word rape. She doesn't really talk about it there's a moment where she sort of like briefly flashes to it but like it mostly sort of exists kind of outside of the story 
I didn't really want to show it. It wasn't really important to me to show it. But I was interested in, yeah, like this sort of process of rediscovering herself through this like weird conceit. And yeah, I wrote a draft of it and I was like, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It was like, ding, ding, ding. Like, that's it. Like, that's, I've, I've, fa- I've figured something out. And it felt like a good, worthwhile, unique, interesting, important, necessary story. And I'd never felt that way about anything I'd written before. And I, you know, I've been writing for my whole life and I never felt that way. And that was it. Like, and after that, I was like, it was like off to the races. It was just like, <laughs> I didn't look back. Your path to publication wasn't easy. You'd gotten a literary agent, but during your first round of submissions, no publisher would take the book. How did you eventually land with Grey Wolf Press? The process of trying to sell a book is, like, really <laughs> terrible. It, it just, it's very stressful, if you're com- especially coming at it as a debut author where, like, you're sort of outside of the system. And... Even finding an agent was really strange because, like, you know, back when I um, was looking for an agent, I would write query letters to agents. And also agents were visiting us at Iowa and I would give them my manuscript. And I would get this note back and people would be like, oh, like, this is interesting, but, like, it's not quite for me. Or they'd be like, it's great. When you have a novel, let me know because, like, no one wants to buy short stories. Why? They don't sell a lot. Now, my book is an exception, and there are exceptions. Like, George, people are like, what about George Saunders? Like, he's always, everyone always cites George Saunders as the exception because he does. But, like, yeah, in terms of, like, sales, like, people just often are, don't know how to read short stories. And, in fact, a lot of people will say to me, like, I normally don't like short stories, but I like your short stories. My personal theory is that it has to do with the fact that, like, we don't teach short story collections in schools, like, in public schools. So, like, when I was in high school, like, we would read, like, a handful of, like, classic short stories like we read you know like the lottery we would read the most dangerous game and like i don't know uh, a rose for emily and like one other you know and always be uh, the monkey's paw right and then and that would be it um and so the stories are old and they also would sort of exist like floating in this void where it's just like oh this is just that. but like a short story collection is its own creature right the, the, the stories interact with each other in specific ways but we just don't teach that I don't think so I think people like are afraid of them they like don't know how to read them because they didn't learn so yeah so they're just a hard sell Um, and oftentimes when writers do sell them it's often because they've sold a novel and they sell the collection with a novel right but I only had this collection and so a lot of agents were just like I don't really know what to do with this I was really lucky in that my agent Kent Wolf who I absolutely love took me on and so, yeah, and then we, we and then did a second round. We did a second round of submissions to, like, the big indies, and Grey Wolf was the only place that made an offer. And, and and I still, even after they bought it, I was like, I mean, it'll sell a few copies. You know, it'll, I mean, it'll, it'll probably do fine. Like, hopefully I'll make back my advance, you know, and that's really kind of the dream, wow. right? NPR, it, I mean, it's been released to rave reviews. I'm going to read you some <laughs> of them. NPR dubbed it an abrupt, original, wild collection of stories that somehow catch at familiar unspoken truths about being women in the world that more straightforward or realist writing couldn't. You won the Bard Fiction Prize and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. You were a finalist for the National Book Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, the Kirkus Prize, LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction, the Dylan Thomas Prize, and the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. Well fucking done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I mean, I think, and that was the the funny thing was, You know, obviously it's a good book. I love it. I feel very proud of it. Um, But I think also there was a moment. I mean, I think I think the timing of the book, like, I mean, this sounds really weird to say, but I think if Donald Trump was not president, I think the book would not be selling nearly as well. Really? Why? Because I think that we are in this crisis about gender. And I think the crisis manifesting as me, too. It's manifesting uh, in the way that, like, the election played out. 
with Hillary Clinton, you know, regardless of how you think about her, particularly as a candidate, like the way in which sort of women saw sexism on this like massive, boorish scale. Her voice is so shrill. She's so frail looking. Like, I mean, literally the sort of thing where like if you put it in a novel, someone would be like, take that out. That's too obvious. Like it's too on the nose. But like the way that that played out, and I think it was really traumatic for a lot of women. And I think we didn't fully acknowledge or sort of deal with that trauma because then the election happened, Trump was president and everyone panicked. So like, I feel like we sort of that sort of just happened. And I feel like there's just we're in this like really intense crisis moment. And I think a lot of people are sort of trying to reckon with these questions and and this this feeling. So the book feels really relevant, even though I but also like I wrote this book, like I had sold it two years ago, or no, at this point over two years ago. And then like I wrote it five years before that. So like, but so like these things are always relevant, right? The way in which we treat women and talk about women and sort of grapple with their bodies has always been really terrible. And I think, and I kind of think it always will be. I'm sort of a pessimist about that. Um, You're changing that. I mean, you've said that writing about sex is not often done well, despite the fact, in your words, sex is so interesting from a craft point of view. It's action and it reveals more about a character than most anything else. And I think you, you write about sex in ways that isn't really about sex at all. Yeah. If my book could do anything, I would hope that it would sort of add toward normalizing queerness, normalizing queer sex, normalizing women's bodies, normalizing sex, like sex scenes where women are sort of the the center of those scenes and are not these like sort of peripheral bodies. And, and I mean, when people come up to me, sort of the, the, the biggest comment or the most frequent comment I get is like, it's really amazing to read stories with queer characters in them. I almost never get to do that. And that's like, it makes me so sad. Like, I shouldn't be. <laughs> I know you said that you wanted the queerness and the sexual partners to be uncommented yeah. upon. Oh, yeah. I, I, I sort of feel like if no one, I would be happier if almost no one asked me about that because like that would mean that like it was not worth commenting on because it would just be like, oh, of course. But as it is, we don't live in that world. So regarding identity, you've said that being queer can feel surreal. There's this sense that you're seeing things that other people don't, which I think is true of many groups of people who exist apart from the more culturally dominant perspective. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I actually can can cite an example that I recently l- listened to on a podcast that I loved. I was listening to um, an old episode of Planet Money about Subaru and about the way that Subaru was marketed, like when Subaru started sort of being marketed toward uh, lesbians. And it was talking about how the company was struggling and they sort of figured out that like lesbians were like actually a massive part of their market. And so they would make these ads where like queer people would get the joke and nobody else would. So it would be there would be like one that was like, you know, loves camping and dogs. Too bad it's just a car, you Mm. know, or like. They would it would have like the license plate would have like Xena written mm. on it. And it was like these weird ways in which they were like nodding in the secret language toward queer consumers that like a straight person would not necessarily understand or know. Subaru as U-Haul. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there would just be this like really interesting way, you know, it was like the sort of the secret language. And I think obviously these secret languages exist everywhere, right? And they exist between people of color, certain kinds of communities. Women have their, I mean, we talk about a lot about the, you know, now with all the Me Too stuff, like about the whisper network and the way that women interact with each other, the way women warn each other. There's this like level of engagement with 
this other space that's like mapped over the space that everyone knows, but you don't realize that it's there. Does that make any? I, Absolutely. I don't know if I'm like, sometimes the secret language isn't for you, and that's okay, you know. But when people who do have the secret language are recognize it, it's like very exciting for them. There was a, a line in The Resident that really thrilled me when the queer female character finally speaks her mind to one of the characters <laughs> that's sort of torturing her. And she says, I have never had less of an obligation to anyone in my life, you aggressively ordinary woman. And I think that's one of the best insults I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, I think it's pretty much the worst thing you could say to somebody. It is. I it mean, was, I, it, the whole passage leading up to that line is just <laughs> outstanding. There are actually two other passages in The Resident that I want to ask you about because so much of that story is about memory and writing. The main character, this woman, is listening to this conversation about the role of ego in writing. And so I'll read this passage. Anel shook her head. You have to work hard. Ego only creates problems. But without ego, Diego said, your writing is just scribbles in a journal. Your art is just doodles. Ego demands that what you do is important enough that you be given money to work on it. He gestured to the hotel around us. It demands that what you say is important enough that it be published or shown to the world. And so, Carmen, I was wondering how you feel about the role of ego in writing. <laughs> Which side were you on in that construction? Oh, I'm Diego in that conversation. <laughs> I feel like that, that that story has a lot of parts where, like, people are just having dinner time conversations that are just, like, me, <laughs> like, arguing with myself. This was the story that felt most autobiographical to me. Yeah, it's weird Especially because she was a Girl Scout. <laughs> right, right, right. It's funny because the story actually has less autobiographical material than you would think. But it has a lot of, like, intellectual autobiography. There's a lot of spaces in that story where I've mapped a lot of my own concerns about, like, the mad woman in the attic conversation, for example. Um, and in that case, right, this idea of, you know, what does it mean to have ego? And I I struggle with this for a long time because I, I, I <laughs> dated a really terrible person in the past who would say to me, like, if I was sort of would say, like, I'm really proud of this thing that I wrote early, like it would say, like, oh, you're an egomaniac. Like you, mm. you know, you think that you're so great and you, th you know, and just would say these like horrible things. And in retrospect, it was just a very insecure person who was trying to um, fuck with my head. But at the time, I was like very worried about that. I was like, oh, no, like, am I an egomaniac? Like, do I love myself too much? Do I love my work too much? Um, and now, of course, looking back at that, I'm like, <laughs> no, no, you don't love yourself too much and your work too much. You love it exactly the right amount. But I do think a lot about ego. Cause, right, because, like, what does it mean to, like, have ego? Like, if you want something to be published, because people will often, like, write books for themselves or, like, write down their their story or write down their, their memories. And, like, that can be therapeutic and useful for all kinds of reasons. But when you say, like, I want to publish this, like, I want this to be in bookstores, what that means is I think this is important enough that, like, you know, bookselling, it's like an investment of time and energy and resources. And, like, you're saying, like, my work or my vision or my, my art that I made is worth all of that. And that's a really huge thing to say. And I think people don't fully realize, like, what a massive thing that is to assert. And so if you don't have some level of ego, not obviously ego when it's too big or undeserved can obviously get in the way. But I think we think of it as like universally negative thing when in fact it's an essential element to being an artist. Because otherwise, like, what are you doing with, with, with your, your time? Voice? Yeah. yeah. Like, what are you, Who's like, what's voice the point? Sharing. Right, right. Others? Exactly. Like, what, like, if, you know, I would not spend all my time staring at a computer screen, ruining my eyes and my posture <laughs> um, <laughs> to like, do this thing that I, like, don't, that I'd be like, eh, you know, they who cares, you know? <laughs> like Another passage from The Resident is about the protagonist's process of seeing. 
and she states, This process has been useful for my writing. In fact, I believe that what talent I have comes not from some sort of muse or creative spirit, but from my ability to manipulate proportions and time. But it has put a strain on my relationships. How I married my wife is still a mystery to me. How do you manipulate proportions and time? I loved that line. Again, that was part of a conversation I was having with myself about, like, what does it mean to have talent? What does it mean to be a skillful writer? I don't often reference TED Talks, like, ever, but there is one TED Talk that I really like um, that Elizabeth Gilbert does. I don't know mm. if you've ever heard it about— Is um, it the second one where the muse has to come and say, yeah, yes? Yeah, 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 so where, like, good. she talks about, like, the history of sort of, of the, ge- quote-unquote, a genius, yes. which was not— a person was a genius, but like a spirit that like entered you, you know, and thinking about this sort of philosophy of like a muse or, or, or sort of this yeah. other thing, right? Yeah. And you as a vessel. And so I, I was just thinking a lot about that and like what it what that means. And what I'm thinking about is often like how can shifting our perspective or shifting time sort of change the way we think about certain ideas? So for example, in inventory, which is – this is a good example of this. So I wrote that story very quickly. Um, it was an idea that came to me. I wrote it down in like, in like two hours and like – but I was thinking a lot about when I was writing it. You know, I wanted to write a story that was entirely sex scenes. That was like the challenge I had for myself. And then I also was thinking a lot about one of my, one of my favorite movies in the world, which is Children of Men. And that's a movie in which I've seen it, you know, dozens of times. Every time I rewatch it, I see new stuff. Like there's more stuff that I have not seen before that I notice. And the reason for that is there's this interesting thing that it's happening in that movie. I mean, it happens in all films where there's this foregrounding and backgrounding. For inventory, it's this like woman's like sort of in the foreground, you have this woman's like sexual encounters. And then in the background, you have this like slow creeping pandemic that's like slowly killing off people. And at no point is the background foregrounded. Like, you know, you're just sort of seeing in, in the way that like we live our lives with tragedy in the background. So like right now we're sitting in the studio like outside of the walls of this of this room, all kinds of things are happening in the world. And like, it's only a matter of perspective, right? It's like, you know, I could frame this interview here as like part of my day. And it would be this like, really like, you know, high point for my day. But if you were cutting between our interview, and like people in Puerto Rico who are like still suffering and dying from the hurricane, like, it would seem really like petty and strange, right? That we were like having this very casual conversation about a book while people were like dying, right? And all that is, it just, like the conversation does not change. It's just like the way that we sort of frame it and think about it changes. Um, and you can do that in a million different ways, right? And so I'm just really interested as a writer in like how shifting these elements and how they relate to each other can sort of change the way that you read or perceive events or characters or whatever. You have an, an untitled memoir coming out in 2019 from Grey Wolf Press. Given the clues that can be found in your piece, The USS Awaken Dreaming, about your time in Indiana, it sounds like it's going to be intense. You recount this period with a headline in the piece and a single cryptic sentence. Bed with the Lavender Comforter, Bloomington, Indiana, 2012. This was the bed of trauma, repeated, of tears and screaming and violence of body and mind, wrought beneath and upon sheets the color of flowers. How would you describe this memoir? It is a sort of experimentally structured memoir that both covers, like, personal material and also sort of talks about um, domestic violence and same-sex relationships um, and sort of the the unique qualities. Um, Why experimental? (laughs) 
Um, it's not just going to be like a straight memoir. Sort of like here's what happened to me. Like there's sort of elements of essay and analysis and there's sort of elements of speculation and there's just these sort of other pieces that exist that I think fall outside of a more traditional I mean it's not things that I've invented there's things that other writers have already done but it's definitely um, not a traditionally structured memoir if that makes any sense you've said this about the book I'm afraid of this memoir with a memoir there's no place to hide the screen of fiction is gone and it feels really naked really vulnerable I'm afraid people are going to ask me all kinds of overly personal questions when it comes out. But really, I'm afraid that I'm going to get it wrong, that you'll capture an abusive same-sex relationship wrong, or that others who have gone through one won't be able to relate to your experience. Are you feeling any any better? I mean, I don't know that there's any possibility of doing it wrong. There certainly are ways to think about it and to write about it that don't center the things that need to be centered. You know, it's it's a very, like, for fraught topic. It's a thing that has not been written about a lot. That's the other thing. It's, like, the pressure of the, you know, single representation where it's, like, it's just a book that doesn't really exist. I mean, I sort of – I know this because I tried to find it, you know, after right. I, I sort of went through this experience. I remember I was looking for, like, books about – domestic violence and same-sex relationships and I and I found almost nothing. I mean, I found like a couple like a one YA novel from like a long time ago. I found a couple of essays. I found a bunch of like academic books sort of for like therapists and like but like that was it, you know. And I, and I really was like, how is this not a genre that's been like represented more? It's a topic that a, needs to be talked about and also one that just seems like ripe for conversation and even though this, I mean, the queer community has been having this conversation for a very, very long time, but like never in any way that's sort of been sort of um, codified by literature on this massive scale that I think it should. You refer to the now antiquated term lesbian battering and suggest that that term suggests that it's all physical and it's not. Mm-hmm. What else is it about? It's physical. It can be psychological. It can be emotional, sexual. There are other elements of it besides just, again, like, get you know, someone hitting somebody else in the face and giving them a black eye, like, which is, again, what we imagine. And, like, finding the space to talk about that, um, especially right now when we're having a lot of conversations about how men and women relate to each other in these ways and how culture sort of failed women and sort of having that conversation about how these things manifest in in you know, queer couples is, is really important. And again, it's just not a thing that you talk about a lot. Thank you for writing this. It's an important book. Yeah. I, again, I hope I, I hope I, I do justice. Um, but I am excited. So. You always seem to be juggling multiple projects. You have notes <laughs> for half a dozen novels, an essay collection, other projects. When you get bored or frustrated, you said you switch gears. Do you have plans for anything for after the memoir? Because I also understand you've taken up drawing. Yeah, I'm slowly trying to draw... Just sort of for my own notification. I wonder to... if that'll change the way you write because drawing changes the way you see. Yeah, I know. I believe it. I, I I don't know. I don't know how it will affect it, but I'm gonna try. Yeah, it's just sort of a hobby. I have no sort of designs on like becoming a visual artist. But yeah, uh, I know. I actually am working on like many other projects. I I have some stuff I can't actually can't talk about uh, that's sort of in the works, which is all very exciting. And I also have a book, another book that I'm working on, which is a sort of novel in stories that I'm really excited about. That has a lot of historical material that I've been doing research for. So yeah, there's I've got a lot of stuff kind of in the. In the pan, I guess. I don't know. That's wonderful. Yeah. Carmen, before we close the show, I was wondering if you could read a passage from one of the stories in Her Body and Other Parties. And 
I've, I've picked this excerpt. It's from the story titled The Resident that we've talked about. And the protagonist is reflecting on a traumatic experience and the subsequent understanding of it. All right. How could I have known that they had guided my trusting, sleepwalking body out of the cabin and through the forest? That they crouched mere feet away, watching my form suspended in the clearing, circling slowly in the blackness like an errant satellite. My body was so cold it felt like it was disappearing at the edges, like my shoreline was evaporating. It was the opposite of pleasure, which had pumped blood through me and warmed my body like the mammal I was. But here I was just skin, then just muscle, then merely bone. I felt like my spine was slowly pulling up into my skull, each vertebra click, click, clicking like a car slowly ascending a roller coaster's first hill. And then I was just a hovering brain, and then a consciousness floating and fragile as a bubble. And then I was nothing. Only then did I understand. Only then did I see the crystal outline of my past and future, conceive of what was above me, innumerable stars, incalculable space, and what was below me, miles of mindless dirt and stone. I understood that knowledge was a dwarfing, obliterating, all-consuming thing, and to have it was to be both grateful and to suffer greatly." I was a creature so small, trapped in some crevice of an indifferent universe. But now I knew. Carmen Maria Machado, thank you for bringing this extraordinary tour de force of a book into the world. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about Carmen Maria Machado and her books on her website, CarmenMariaMachado.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate 
No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.